Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. It's uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, I'm so happy that you chose to worship with us at In Town. If you're new here, uh, my name is Brian. I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, And by way of introduction, we've been going through a rather extended series on the spiritual rhythms of the Christian life, those rhythms that we adopt, those practices that we practice in order to draw us into a better understanding of who Jesus is and a better practice of what he calls us to. And this morning, we're going to look at the idea of contentment, something all of us want, but few of us have. And as we get started, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would let the words that follow be pleasing to you. Let them be useful to all of those who hear. Let each of us encounter Jesus. There are some people here this morning who are grieving a loss. Would you give them comfort? For some of us, life just isn't going the way that we hoped it would we're disillusioned and we need your reassurance. Others are just adrift and we need your gentle hand to guide us home. Perhaps we're here this morning and we're not sure what we want. Wherever we find ourselves believing or doubting, confident or confused, would you meet us with your grace? Would you extend your healing hand to us through this passage? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday afternoon, I watched a a clip for probably about the fifth time this week, and it's a clip by the comedian Louis C.K., and I had asked Katie to watch it with me because I intended to use it in uh, this sermon, and she said, "Uh, how are you going to use that? And she didn't mean because it was full of, uh, you know, words that wouldn't be appropriate for a Sunday morning. This was an appearance that he did on the Conan O'Brien show, so it was relatively clean, but she was meaning He's funny, and this is funny, and, well, maybe you're not quite as funny, but I'm going to try to at least convey what he's saying, okay? And he has a bit that he did on the Conan O'Brien show, and he said, everything's amazing, and nobody's happy. He says, we live in an amazing world, and it's just wasted on spoiled people. And he talks about going from, uh, in his lifetime, which would be including mine as well, from the rotary phone. So you had to dial with sparks, basically, to dial a number. And it took forever because the zeros were on the bottom. You had to go all the way around. And now our phones can do anything. But if they don't do it immediately, we get disgruntled. You know, oh, this thing won't work. And he's saying, would you give it a second? It's going to space. Give it a second to come down from space. He talks about all of these things that are amazing in our world, and yet we're still unhappy. Flying, for instance. We all had these nightmare stories. You know, we had to wait at the gate for 20 minutes extra. We had to check our our carry-on bag at the last minute, and then the plane sat on the runway for 40 minutes. Well, what happened next? Did you fly through the air like a bird? (laughs) Did you experience a miracle of human flight? You're sitting in a chair in the sky, 
Everyone on the plane should be like, oh my gosh, I'm on a plane in the sky. Everything is amazing and nobody's happy. We're talking this morning about something all of us want and few of us have, and that is contentment. And we've been talking as a church in insider ways about disciplines, about rhythms of life that lead to Jesus. And in this case, we're talking about the practice, the discipline of contentment. But even if you're not a Christian, contentment is something that's certainly on your radar. You want it. And you don't want it just in an end-of-life sort of way. You want it in an everyday now sort of way. And Paul is telling us, both Christians and non, that he's offered, that Jesus is offering us the possibility to be content, not just when things are amazing, but when things are not. Our passage starts with a personal acknowledgement to the Philippian church, and he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. The Philippians love Paul. They love his mission. They're in it with him, and they're monetarily supporting Paul to go and plant churches. Now, Paul is writing them to tell them, to acknowledge that he's received this gift that they sent, and he says he's overjoyed. He notes that some time has transpired between when he last received a gift, and he hasn't been certain what's going on. Have they forgotten him? Do they no longer believe in him? Perhaps he was concerned that they had, he had dropped off their radar, and so he sends them this note to acknowledge them, but he claims this as a teaching moment for the Philippians. And we don't know the details, but Paul is glad that they didn't waver in their concern for him, but circumstances had prevented them instead from sending support. Now notice, however, this isn't your standard thank you letter, right? This is something different. When you give to InTown, when you give to any nonprofit, you get a, a letter in the mail, either at that month or at the end of the year, and you expect to receive not only an acknowledgement, but some kind of thank you note that's attached. You know, thank you for your gift. We couldn't do it without you. It's because of your giving that we're able to exist. And those are all true, and those are all well and good, but that's not the kind of acknowledgement that Paul is giving here. In fact, he doesn't tell them, thank you. What he says instead is, I'm overjoyed to receive your gift. What's he doing here? Well, in the ancient world, and it's not too different than today, money equals status. And if you received a gift from someone, it was normally expected that the person on the receiving end would reciprocate in some manner, whether it was a monetary gift in return, whether it was inviting them to your home. It had to equate somehow. There had to be some equality in the gift to symbolize that you were social equals. And if that didn't happen, or if the person on the receiving end wasn't unable was unable to give something in return, then the benefactor gained standing. They gained status. They were able to stand above the person that they had given to. And Paul wants to subvert that. Not because it makes him feel lousy because he's dependent upon the Philippians, but instead it's a teaching moment for them. And he wants to remind them that they're in a relationship that's not governed by status and money and possessions, but it's governed by grace, that they have a calling to support Paul, and Paul has a calling to go and plant churches and disciple those churches and leaders. And those two things are different but equally necessary for what God is doing in the world. And what Paul is telling them, and it's not, again, because he feels less, he feels small and tiny, 
but he's telling them, look, I'm not beneath you. I'm not beholden to you. Because why? He's learned to be content. He's learned to be content when he has plenty, when the money's coming in, when all the churches are supporting him regularly, and he's content when, they're, when that's not happening and when he's in want. Now, think with me for a moment about the kind of independence that that could bring in your life were you to understand contentment in plenty and in want. Think about the kind of confidence and independence that that sort of deep spiritual equilibrium could bring in your life, in your relationships. You're able to say, you know, I, I want your approval, but I don't have to have your approval. And this allows you to be authentic. It allows you to be real. It allows you to be yourself rather than be constantly beholden to what you think other people want from you. You're in control and not their expectations. You're not bound by other people's opinions. At work, it works in much the same way. You're able to say, I want this job. Maybe I even like this job, but I don't have to have this job. And therefore, you're unexploitable. No one can threaten you. No one can manipulate you. You can say, I'm going to choose to work hard, and I'm going to do as good a job as I can, but I don't have to work without ceasing in order to prove my worth to you. We don't have to live in fear of losing a job because our contentment, what Paul is saying should be, is not based upon your paycheck. But get this, because there's another level to this, because so much of our discontentment doesn't come only from others, but from what we think of us, from our own self-opinion. And with contentment, with a deep inner stability, we're not deriving our contentment from living up to other standards or even living up to our own standards. You see, we're free that when we fail, when we blow it at life, we can still have stability. Because why? According to Paul, the reason is that you have a God that loves you independent of how you perform. You have a God who accepts you in Jesus Christ, and that fact is better than your failure is bad. Now, we've been talking for a moment here about the implications, sort of the benefits of contentment, but what is it in its essence? Contentment was a a big idea in the ancient world, just as it is today. And there was a prominent school of thought that had contentment perhaps as its central value, and that was the philosophical school of Stoicism. And Seneca came sort of in the middle of this historical school. And Seneca was a prominent Stoic philosopher. And he wrote, a happy man is content with his present lot. He is reconciled to his circumstances. Now, there's a certain value to this, right? Because we can't control life. We can't dictate how our circumstances are to be and going to turn out. Life is full of plenty and want. And so, que sera, sera right? Whatever will be, will be. Contentment then, in his mind, in the Stoic's mind, would be found in resigning oneself to fate, mastering your fears and your anxiety over the fact that you can't control life, mastering your sense of disappointment and your anxiety. There's a certain level of detachment from your circumstances, Now, as I said, there's a certain benefit to some of that, but what Paul is offering, the contentment that he is talking about, is very different. What he is saying, first of all, is that contentment doesn't come from within, but it comes from without. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he says in verse 13. Contentment doesn't come from within, but from without. And it's not here a blank check. It's not a magic wand that whatever I choose to do because Christ will strengthen me, that I can therefore expect success in whatever I choose. It's not that sort of spiritual magic wand. But what Paul is talking about is that Christ has ushered him into the secret of contentment based upon divine intervention, based upon something from outside of Paul that intervenes in the way that he experiences and the way that he thinks about and processes life and his circumstances. And this divine intervention, which Paul has experienced in Jesus Christ, has completely rearranged and reordered his priorities and his experience of his circumstances, his hopes for the future, what he wants out of life. It's not through, you see, sheer willpower. I will think differently about my circumstances. I will keep a positive mind no matter what comes. It's not that. But it's through receiving a strong inner steadiness, a strong disposition from God. You see, it's more than a shift in perspective. Paul has a source, a source of peace that's independent of his circumstances. Contentment, first of all, doesn't come from within, but it comes from without. It comes upon you. And secondly, it's not about, as the Stoics thought, that there's some sort of detachment to our feelings about our circumstances. It's not a reducing of our feelings, a reducing of our desire, but it's a a relocating it. It's a redirecting of it. It's locating our delight and stability in things other than our circumstances and our material possessions. Paul is not seeking detachment from his circumstances, but he's learned to narrate them as a part of God's story that he is now a participant in. Paul's writing this letter from jail. He's been jailed for preaching the gospel, but he has this deep spiritual equilibrium at work that allows him to re-narrate his circumstances based upon a story that's far more compelling than the accumulation of wealth and possessions and his personal comfort. Paul becomes content, you see, not through self-mastery, but through self-giving. He sees his present lack as a means by which God is bringing grace to other people. His little story is connected to God's big story. And so it's not just a shift in perspective. It's not a detachment from feeling certain way. It's actually a passionate pursuit of something different. He's a passionate participant in, the, in God's story. He's been drawn up into something, not detached from it. Now, if we're now circling in on, what, on an idea of what contentment is, we need to finally ask, well, how do we get it? I see this. It sounds good. I would love to live that way, but how? How do I get it? Paul says that he's learned the secret. He's learned to be content. And that's what we've been talking about throughout this series is that these disciplines, these practices are not a light switch on the wall that you turn on. And all of a sudden, you're a man or woman of prayer. All of a sudden, you know how to repent and you're constantly repentant. It's a practice. It's a rhythm of life. And so is contentment. 
It's a rhythm of thought and practice that builds a reservoir of spiritual equilibrium. And if you don't have that reservoir, you can't just walk into a season of want and expect to be overjoyed and expect to understand God's perspective and to live in contentment. It has to be built so that when you're in those circumstances, you can draw upon that reservoir of contentment, that reservoir of spiritual equilibrium. Well, how do we learn this secret? Paul was contending with two alternative approaches to contentment, one of which I mentioned, the Stoics. They wanted to achieve contentment through managing their circumstances, mastering their desires. These were sort of the sophisticated, educated, mostly wealthy elite class. These were the people that could carve out places of comfort in their lives. They could choose to take a day in the park and go read The New Yorker. They could discuss which wine regions in Italy were the best and who is the best art dealer on the Upper West Side. You see, they they could carve out parts of their life that actually were plentiful and comfortable and easy. And so it was easy for them to say, you know, reconcile yourself to your circumstances because generally speaking, their circumstances were good and comfortable. They could afford, literally afford, detachment from life and from the challenges of life. So that was Stoicism, but there's also another one Another movement in Paul's day, and it was centered on what was called the mystery religions. And these were people who weren't the cultural elites who read The New Yorker in the park. These were the people who read People magazine and watched NASCAR. It's a completely different type of outlook on life. And they couldn't afford to manage life in their favor. And so what did they seek out? They sought out religious experience and religious regimen that would somehow get the attention of the gods that the gods would then be appeased and they would bless them and protect them. And this is what Paul is making reference to actually in verse 12 when he talks about this secret. He's saying this secret is something very different than this mysterious secret religions that people are practicing. So those are the two alternatives. And Paul is addressing both of them because these are both attractive pathways to contentment. Both groups are seeking it through avoiding negatives, avoiding the challenges of life, avoiding ever being in want. You see, the Stoics wanted to insulate themselves from hardship and discomfort through their ability to manage life, to afford and purchase exemption from its challenges. The other's resources weren't material, but moral. If I can get the God's favor, then I can gain contentment because they will protect me. Now, both seem so obviously faulty, obviously transparent about it's all about yourself. But don't we often choose to pursue contentment in one or both of these ways? You see, doesn't our anxiety over money, doesn't our constant pursuit of more belie the fact that we're pursuing contentment just like the Stoics? That if I can arrange my life in a comfortable manner and have enough wealth to fall back on, then circumstances are not challenging. I can keep those challenges at bay through earning enough money. Now, for the more religious among us, for the more moral, we believe we can gain contentment by doing the right things. We can obey ourselves into happiness. If I work hard, if I keep my nose clean, then it will go well for me. And none of us probably would state it in those terms. But when life doesn't go the way we want it to, don't we start thinking, what did I do wrong? 
Why is God not blessing me now? Why is He not protecting me? I've done my duty. I've prayed. I've gone to church. I've led a good life. Why is life so challenging? Don't we feel cheated by God when we behave ourselves and He doesn't come through for us? What Paul is saying is that you've both missed it. You're looking for something in this world that can come only from outside of it, you see? And to get it, First of all, we have to admit the magnitude of our own discontentment. We have to admit the magnitude of our own unhappiness. Paul is preaching the good news of of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and future return. It's good news, but it's only good news if we see the problem. It's only as good as the problem it addresses is bad. We have to admit the magnitude of our own discontentedness before we can receive true contentment, contentedness. Heinrich Ibsen was a North Norwegian playwright in the 19th century, and he says, when you take away someone's life lie, they lose all happiness. When you take away someone's life lie, they lose all happiness. What is he talking about? What is our life lie? Well, as long as we're pursuing something that we feel will fill up our emptiness, as long as we believe that there's something out there, something around the corner, that if I get it, I will finally be content, I will finally be fulfilled, then you're living in a state of denial of, your own, of the magnitude of your own discontentment. If you say, if only I was married, or if only I was married to the right person, If only I had more money, if only I could graduate from the right school, if only I had better parents and better education. Heinrich Ibsen calls these things our life lies because what they do is they belittle the despair that we all feel. They don't do justice to the real injustices in the world that we all experience. They're shortcuts, they're half measures. To get contentment, we have to understand how deep our unhappiness runs. We have to identify our life lies that we're living by in order to find a cure. I love that Brooke quoted C.S. Lewis earlier today in Mere Christianity. This kind of goes right along with that quote. And he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I have these desires and they're constantly unmet in this world, then the only logical explanation is not that I just haven't found the solution, is that I wasn't made to find happiness and contentment on those things. Paul says he's learned to be content in plenty and in want. In plenty? You don't have to learn to be content in plenty. Plenty is your contentment, correct? It's a contentment all its own. No, because you see, Paul is telling us that some of us need to achieve plenty in order to see how deeply discontent we actually are. Because plenty, having more, is our life lie. And unless we die to that, unless it's taken from us, we'll never find true contentment. He's found contentment apart from plenty, in plenty, apart from want and in want. It's only as we get what we think sometimes our heart's want is that we realize how shallow our desires actually were. 
It's only when we're given access to what we thought was going to make us happy that we realize how shallow those wants and those desires were. We have to acknowledge our life lie. We have to realize that the gospel's answer is only as good as the problem is bad. People with little sins and little problems and little discontentment will come to a little gospel and a little church and a little Jesus. We have to realize that we want something out of life that's greater than life. We want something out of the world that's greater than the world. Or as Wallace Stevens said in the front of your bulletin, in contentment, I still still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. That's what Paul is selling, friends. He says, I've found a contentment that is detached from abundance and from lack. And I'm offering you the resources of another world entirely. I'm offering contentment that comes not from within, but from without. And that is his secret. The secret is his union with Jesus and what he has received from Jesus. You see, Jesus is the God who stepped into our world, who had joy in poverty, who found victory in dying. And he is the God who says, my life, my joy is yours now for the taking. And that's the life that Paul has taken hold of. And that's his inner equilibrium. That's his spiritual strength and reservoir. That's his contentment. Because he knows if he doesn't have anything else and he has Jesus, he has everything. And he's going to be okay. You're made for another world. The happiness and the joys that you experience here and that I experience here are real. But they're mere echoes of true joy and true contentment and the eternal delight that Jesus is offering. So take hold of him. Take hold of that secret, that eternal contentment, by giving up all the ways that you've sought to secure it for yourself. Let his strength, let his contentment be yours. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, it it sounds delightful. And if we're honest, sometimes it sounds like pie in the sky, that something we may finally achieve in our twilight years, but certainly not something that we could come to understand uh, as we're younger. Lord, help us to see that that's just not true. And it doesn't come just by experiencing life and detaching ourselves from the good and bad, but it comes only from being united to you and resting in you and the peace and the eternal love that you offer. Lord, I pray that wherever we're coming from, wherever we started from this morning, doubting or believing that you would take one decided step towards us and that we would do so in return. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to come to the table, each and every week we confess our faith, what it means to belong to Jesus, what it means to be a part of his church, what it means to belong to a church that eats together and frames their life based upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this morning we're using the Heidelberg Catechism, which was read in worship, in public worship, each and every Sunday, a new question. So this morning we're doing question number 37. Would you stand, if you're willing and able, to confess what we believe. What do you confess 
when you say that he suffered during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Thank you. you. May be seated. This is the, the table that we come to to recognize our own spiritual poverty and to celebrate the fact that God has given us all of the riches to meet and answer our poverty. And so come this morning, if you're a Christian, no matter what's happened this week, no matter what you're struggling with, what you're wrestling with, this table is for you, and this table is a celebration of the fact that God has not left you, that God is for you, that God wants you to receive his grace and to keep walking, to keep pressing forward. And if you're here exploring the faith, if this is all new to you, you haven't taken that step of faith into the church, then don't feel compelled to come. We'd love for you to come and participate in this meal, but do so when it's an authentic time for you. Let's now pray for our meal together. Dear Jesus, once again we pray and we lift our hearts to you, we lift our needs to you. We ask in hope that you would meet those needs. Lord, would you meet our spiritual needs, our spiritual darkness? Would you shine your light there? Would you meet our tangible needs? Would you provide for those who are hurting, for those who are hungry, for those who are needy in material ways? Lord, I pray that you would feed us spiritually through this meal just as you feed us physically. And Lord, we pray that this meal would be for us the very body and the blood of Jesus himself. We pray in his name. Amen.